Yeah, Vaughn? time since we did this as in like a as in like a normal show you know we had mcbox who was amazing yeah how can you not be in a in a good mood listening to that gent right and then we did uh what did we do before that by the way appropriately for this episode nubs is having a meal <laughs> yeah, definitely appropriate. Although those aren't marbles in his mouth, I think it's is it is it stir, rice stir fry rice well, rice baby? Is that what's going on? If we were really being authentic, by the way, before I forget, it was Kansas left overture was the and we had Bill Keith on. Oh, we had Bill Keith. That's yeah, right. yeah. Um, so now it's just us knuckleheads. Us jerks. Back to normal. Two, two by the turds. way, do you do you remember rice rice? Have we talked about rice rice baby on the podcast? No, but of course I remember it. So I think that that, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you know, Gary, we can check on this, I'm sure, but wasn't that like a Detroit radio thing or, or was this like a national thing? There was, we're no, talking about, it was local. Yeah. It was 96.3. I want to say. Yeah. I feel like the radio station did it. It was a, um, <laughs> Nubs has chopsticks and a little bull and he's just shoveling. What, what is it? Sushi or something? California roll. Yeah. If I was really being authentic, I would be eating meatloaf right now. Yeah, I know. And some potatoes and carrots and stuff. Yeah. Um, So this radio station, I I believe, came up with this song parody. It's like a Weird Al style, but certainly not Weird Al, of Rice Rice Baby. And it's great. They talk about like all kinds of like Chinese food and stuff and, you know. It's, it's a classic. Can you can you find that still? Let me see. Well, I you know it's interesting because now archiving is part of what everybody does, right? But there, think about the miles and miles of content from local radio shows. You know things that people grew up with and listen to every morning. Where these classic bits, I don't know whether they're archived or not. Yeah. Well, and if they are, what are you going to do with them? You know. Here we go. This is it. Stop. Grab a table and a menu. menu. Ice is back in this oriental venue. venue. Hungry for a little chop suey. You got some dim sum? Bring it right to me. You know what you want? Yo, can't decide. Column A, column B, I like fried. Shrimp and spare ribs. My fingers I'm licking. Waiting for the main course. Kung Pao chicken. Spicy. <laughs> oh, that's what I remember. <laughs> yeah. If you that's the wine. Yeah. Spicy. Yeah. It, it goes on. It goes on. But uh, I would never get played today, by the way. You know, yeah. Now it would be uh, it'd be deemed not racist or something. Yeah, yeah not appropriate. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, but what I was that, saying was that you know, think about just local Detroit radio. There was these legendary morning shows, and if they would put together a compilation of some of the best bits of that era, I think yeah. it would sell. You know, and I'm not yeah. saying like on a CD or something, but you just wonder were these things archived and. You know, if so, are they hanging on to them to to try and at some point take advantage of the market? But 
you know, we that's what we were listening to before Howard Stern came along. Yeah. Uh, it was local morning radio. Well, you were part of it. You did you did the internship with the Dick Purton show. Yeah. And yep. they did a lot of great bits. I mean, they were oh, pros. Yeah. You know, they were pros and and they had great characters and great and you were you, you spent what a whole summer with them? I did, yeah. And I mean the advantage of that was it was such a big show. It was it was really it was one yeah. of the top three morning shows. On the oldie station, right? The market. It? Yeah. Yeah. The advantage of that was that um Every year they would do a CD of the best of the year. Yeah. And that would be released. It was a fundraiser for, I think, you know, Mr. Purton Foundation or something. They'd release that. And so it's this nice archive, this nice yearly snapshot of some of the best bits of the year. But smaller shows that didn't have that luxury, you know, I don't know how they kept their content. I'm sure maybe their content's just all gone. Maybe it's on tapes somewhere. Who knows? Well, that, and again, that, that's the beauty of YouTube, uh, you know, is by the way, Dick Purton's still alive, huh? Nice. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 85 years old. Hopefully re- relaxing somewhere and enjoying himself. Yeah, he, he, he and listen, he, you know, we talked uh, with, uh, with Mick Box, you know, last week about cutting your teeth and touring and, you know, moving all over the world. And those radio, those old radio guys were no different, man. They had to. They had to earn it, you know, and you're talking about moving from market to market and living in weird cities and cutting your teeth in small stations. And I'm sure Dick Purton was no exception, but yeah, he worked so hard on that show and he was, he was an awesome guy too. Just fantastic guy, Yeah, which you don't always get in radio, you know, they loved you. I remember we would listen, you know, and, uh, what would they call? They had a nickname for you. It was your, your name and then private, private investigator, private Private eye. Yeah. Private eye. Yeah, that's my right. first day ever on the air was like my second day of the internship or something. They introduced me and uh, my real name is, you know, apparently sounded to them like a name of a private investigator. So they ended up calling me that and then always followed by private eye. Yeah. Bub's private eye is what the. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yes. you're not really a, a good radio intern unless you have a nickname. You know, <laughs> right, right. Well, now we're like way off topic. I mean, how do I, how do I possibly want to pull a hamstring t- trying to segue this back to <laughs> to tonight's episode? But you know, I think that um, tonight's episode probably wouldn't. I don't know. It's debatable. Interested in your thoughts? Probably wouldn't happen uh, had Meatloaf not passed away recently. I, I don't think that. Um, I don't know. I mean, we could have maybe highlighted, I mean, there's obviously a couple good choices too, in particular of albums you could highlight from him or them. Cause I think always include Jim Steinman, but these two guys passing away within the last year. Uh, and as we'll get to they were really, a, they were a marriage. I mean, they were a musical marriage, no question about it. And it's funny, you know, you sometimes hear about these couples that, you know, they get a little older and like one of them passes away. And then a couple of weeks later, the next one does too. I almost felt that way with these two guys. Like they were just a match made in musical heaven. And, uh, that's certainly what brought it to my mind nub of let's do an episode talking about this guy and these guys and this whole thing, this whole operation. I'm not sure we would have otherwise, but it'll be interesting. Well, this album was much more your thing than my thing when it came out you know i was sort of into other things but however it, did, it crossed over in some funny ways too which we'll, we'll certainly talk about 
it is, it's a situation where neither one of these two could have done it without the other. Truly. You talk about kind of the musical marriage. And we know that for a fact because there was some meatloaf without Jim Steinman. And it was not at all the same. Wasn't even close. Not too good. Not too good. And there was quite a bit of Jim Steinman without meatloaf. And I mean specifically as an artist, not as a songwriter. And that didn't work either. Together, though, there was some magic here. I mean, we'll talk more about Jim Steinman. The guy has written some songs that you and I both adore that are not part of Meatloaf. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he was like a perfect muse for Steinman, you know, and then Steinman was exactly what Meatloaf needed because I, I don't know where he would have gone musically if it weren't for this partnership. So, yeah. And that happens. That happens in music. You know, you've got, it's, I mean, Elton John, Bernie Toppin type stuff. It's like, it just wouldn't have been the same. It just wouldn't have been right. It just wouldn't have been complete. You know? Well, Hey, let's see if you got any, uh, what have they called Jim Steinman? I've heard, you know, I've heard them call him, uh, you know, symphonic rock, you know, uh, uh, theatrical rock, uh, you know, um, operatic rock, cinematic rock, but Hey, bottom line, is it still rock? Let's see if you got any rock in your round and round. All right, nubbies, what's uh, on the playlist lately, buddy? Two new ones and one not new one. Let's go with the not new one first, which would be Aerosmith's 1989 album, Pump. Hmm. Sort of the... Would you say little brother to permanent vacation? I don't know which one was more successful commercially. I know that. I think pump is a much better record. Is that the one with angel on it? Angel is on permanent vacation. Yeah. I, those two just are the same to me. Pump um, is like what it love, takes. Love in an elevator. Yeah. And what it takes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Been liking it. it. It's a f- fascinating album to go back and listen to now just for production purposes. It is so produced. And I mean that in a good way. I'm, big, <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan of lots of production, so it does not bother me. What, one you, bit. Mean, what you mean, like 44 vocal tracks, you think, is over is, is, is <laughs> yeah. heavy production? Huh? Singing a track by syllable. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Second is a new record by a, a not new band, and that is the band Cynic, one of the more kind of underrated prog rock, I'd say prog metal bands, actually, of history. They've had a couple band members leave and die, and it's been really tumultuous, but they do have a new album. It's called Ascension Codes. Pretty amazing musicality there for sure. Um, easily worth checking out if you're into Prague at all. Their previous records are pretty incredible too. So yeah, Essential Codes by Cynic. And then one last new album would be the new album by Ryan Adams, which is Big Colors. This is oh. getting back to sounding a little bit like a band. I know you're very excited about this. Yes. Yes, I am. I was, I was at the midnight sale for that actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what's running around for me too. What is spinning around for you? The first is a box set is that okay can we can we allow that or check with the judges oh that's a compilation yeah let's go with it anyway we're gonna go with it okay well let's find your records and you know i'm i love all this latin salsa 70s flavor you know uh joe baton and uh ray oh, Barreto oh. and louis ramirez and you know all this stuff it's uh bobby valentine it's Good, good stuff. So this is called It's a Good, Good Feeling. The Latin Soul of Fania Records. It is a came out on vinyl, which I got. And it also came out on compact disc. 
which I also got, and I've been enjoying that. The second is the new record from uh, Tears for Fears, and uh, we've highlighted them here on the old podcast here, and we'll be going to see them in May. Are you going? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, it's called The Tipping Point. Haven't heard it yet. I could, I could pretend I could come up with some sort of pretend faux critical review for the sake of it, but I, I honestly, nubs, I just haven't heard it yet. I did listen to the single when it was released. It's still in the shrink wrap. Thought it was okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm a huge fan. So yeah, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. My vinyl copy has not arrived yet. Well, and Roland now has like long gray hair and like a giant beard, you know? And Kurt still looks just like he did in 1984. (laughs) That's right. He looks exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. And the third is kind of, I've, I've discovered the ultimate, the ultimate, Oh, they do that song band Seether. And this is a Vicennial 20 years of Seether. So it is, it's also a compilation. I'm kind of breaking the rules here, but yeah, it's okay. It it is the best way to absorb that band. They got a huge catalog and they are dude. They're like the, the, it's like, Oh, I didn't know they did that song. I I said that like six times listening to this uh, collection, you know, Seether's really good. That whole collection of wind up records artists from, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s. Yeah. Some good bands in there for sure, man. Yeah. They're one of them. Well, let's talk about something else that experienced some uh, commercial success, maybe a little bit more, just slightly more commercial success than Seether. And that is the work of uh, Michael Lee Aday, otherwise known as Meatloaf. Was he an artist? Was he a musician? Was he just a singer? Was he a theater performer? Was he an actor? Probably E all the above, but certainly a singer. I don't think there's any pretending that Meatloaf was a composer or necessarily a musician, uh, but a performer and a singer and a very unique and special one. A very inspiring guy. This is a unheralded story in terms of one with his appearance and stature and and vocal stylings becoming a rock star it's it's and it took a lot of perseverance and a lot of hard work and this guy overcame his entire life health issues and various you know life choice issues and always seemed to kind of bounce back and and what part of what we're talking about today with this particular album is kind of the ultimate bounce back. I mean, this guy was in the tank and probably was completely written off as a one album wonder. And of course I'm referring to bad out of hell, the original bad out of hell, which came out in 1977 and was on the charts nub for nine years. And it's still, it's still today sells about 200,000 copies a year. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it shows the appeal, the usage of this music, and the the timeless nature of Bad Out of Hell, the original. It was the, it still is, the fourth highest selling album ever. Nub, you feel a game coming? Oh boy. Love a game. It's been a while. Let's do it. Screw it. Let's do it. And now, 
the game that everyone is talking about that I have no title for, no clever title for whatsoever. Here we go with Ken Nubs name the remaining top 10 selling albums of all time besides Bad Out of Hell. <laughs> yay, yay. What a terrible name for this game. Now, don't you dare pull anything up because this would be this would be a very easy one to cheat on. I've never cheated in one of these this, games and I won't know. This would be super, super easy to cheat on. All right. Don't do it. Okay. Well, it's a pretty simple game, buddy. We pretty much uh, laid it out there. So, can you name how many of the remaining nine can you name? Let's go. All right, I'll try and work from the most, you know, I think the easiest ones down to the non-most easiest ones. So let's you don't have start. To, you don't have to be fan. You don't have to, 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 to peacock here. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Throw them out there. Michael Jackson thriller. That's one. And Bad Out of Hell is one of them. Well, of course. That's the name of the game. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next, I'm going to go with. Come on. You're on a roll, Thunderlips. Let's do it. Shania Twain, come on over. There you go. That's three. You got to think about these like cross genre things. Mm. Next, I'm going to go with. Is this on there? I guess we didn't really establish. You get three incorrect guesses. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go with Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. That barely missed the top 10. So that's your one. eh, That's your one red X. You get two more. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll give you more than two more. Kind of be cares? Like older stuff. Yeah. Okay. Next. Maybe I'll I will... give you five. Let's give you five. Five? Misfires. Yeah. And if I have it right, the albums have to be from the time where they started tracking this, right? So like the Beatles are not on there because they didn't track sales for the Beatles. That there. would be correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That would be correct. I don't remember the I'll, I'll help you out. Uh, there, there really isn't anything on the list before 1970. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I got to make some guesses here. I can't just, I can't just talk it through forever. Let me go with a couple more classics and kind of flick the jab here. So I'm going to guess <laughs> the next one is Def Leppard Hysteria. Def Leppard Hysteria is not even in the top. 30. Jeez, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Can I just can I just give you a cuz you you made a great point. Yeah. Continue down this idea of crossover, you know. Correct. I mean? yeah. 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 And there's got to be some hip hop And remember, to you get to these levels, you've got to be like moms, kids, right. like everything in between got to be into it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and re- and remember, I'll just throw one more thing in there. Remember that per volume, I mean, nothing topped the 70s in terms of just pure record yeah. sales volume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's it. No, that's all. Okay. Okay. Um, 
things from the 70s that have really lasted too because because this is comprehensive so correct let's say like carol king tapestry carol king tapestry is not uh it's in it's in the 30s jeez okay all right how about like boston's first album Boston's first album isn't even on the list. That might not. Did that make it in time? Okay. You're okay, you're you're in the right. You you just gotta. Yeah. You just gotta take a step back here. Okay. Okay. Let, let's go a little newer because I want I want to test one here. How about Puff Daddy and the Family No Way Out? Not even in the top. 60. Really? Wow. I'll tell you, I worked at a record store when that album was out, and I can assure you yeah, but that... The, again, look, again, that's a rap album. These are things that, like, every... In order to get to frickin' 40-plus million copies, like, yeah, it has to have mass appeal. Yeah. Mass appeal. Like Shania Twain, come on over, yeah. Correct, you nailed that one. I'm not going to give it to you a second time, though, but you, you did. You nailed it the first time. <laughs> yeah, it does, it does cover, too. All right. Do you want me to give you one just to give you a little taste? Let me, let me, just give me, let me make a couple more guesses here. Okay, that, I mean, you're absolutely right that there, there needs to be just these need to be blockbuster albums. I, well, let me ask you this. Are there any is there anything on there that's like a soundtrack? Yes. Okay, the Titanic soundtrack. The Titanic soundtrack is in the forties. Oh, okay. Um God, what other soundtrack would be that big? Okay, let's go back to the 70s. So, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. You were right on it, but okay. All right. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Give me the soundtrack. Go ahead. And go ahead and there's two. There's two soundtracks. Oh, there's two. The, Wait, hold yeah. on. Let me think. Yeah. It. And Titanic's not one of them. No. Like, what was another giant movie of the 90s? <laughs> I mean, was there one bigger than Titanic? Not uh, movie, but soundtrack. Right, a soundtrack to a film, yeah. Correct. So in other words, the, the movie may not as, have been as big as Titanic, but the soundtrack was. I mean, there were some big soundtracks. Like Reality Bites sold a crap load, but that wouldn't be on there. Um, All right, let me give you a couple just to wet your whistle here. Okay, okay. okay yeah. I'm going to give you one of the soundtracks because you're freaking dancing all over it. That's The okay. Bodyguard. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And then I'll give you one other just because I think this will get you going a little bit, and that's Rumors. Oh, yeah. Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's see if you can like get that kind of level. Yeah. There's six left. Well, without bad out of hell, there's five left. Let's see if are, you can get three of the five. Are any from the 80s? One barely. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that the eighties was not barely. Big. Yeah. So Fleetwood Mac rumors like that people started watching level. MTV in the eighties. You know, 
They stop yeah. buying stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's got to be really dominated by the 70s. Pink Floyd, you, Dark Side of the Moon? Yes, that's there. Good. Now, let me give you another hint. There are two from the same band. Two from the same Good job band. on Dark Side. Good job on Dark Side. There are two. There's four left, and two of them are from the same band. I wonder if there's another Floyd album. Eh, that wouldn't be, no. No, not the wall. You got you got two from the same band, one classic rock gem, and a soundtrack left. Oh, there's a second soundtrack. Yes. From the seventies. Yes. <laughs> you gotta get this. Huge soundtrack from the seventies. At least listen, I will give you this. At least we know you're not cheating. Listen, I, I've never cheated. <laughs> I would never cheat on one of these games. Soundtrack from the 70s. Caddyshack. Caddyshack. No, I'm just kidding. That was 1980. (laughs) Um, All right. I'm going to give it to you. Just give it to me, man. Saturday Night Fever. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The two from the same band are the Eagles. Yeah. And one of them's Eagles' greatest hits. Correct. Yeah. Because that was number one for a long time. And the other is... Hotel California. Okay, so you have one left, and it's from 1980. And this was actually, this is number two. 50 million copies. Number two from 1980. Yeah. What genre? (laughs) Classic rock. From 1980, and it sold 50 million, and I'm missing it? Yes. I mean, I guess it's fitting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know, man. Just give it to me. Oh, really? Wow. Come on. So Mutt Lang produced two of the top three. Uh, Well, he produced Shania and he produced Back in Black. Yeah. Yeah, but Shania was 10th. Oh, I thought you said that was third. No, the bodyguard is third. Pack in Black is the number two selling album of all time. 29 and a half million certified. That is so hard to believe, man. 50 million claimed. Yeah, I know. I would never have guessed that. Yeah. I, I tell you what, though, that's an interesting study. I'm glad we did that game, even though I sucked at it. Because that is. You did. That is such a microcosm of the music industry. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that tells a whole narrative there. There's there. You could write an essay on that list. Yes, it does. Wow. Well, back to meat. Let's get back to the meat here. Yeah. Uh, so as we mentioned from the top, uh, Jim Steinman and Meatloaf both died within the last year. They say Meatloaf's cause of death was COVID, but he, he had terrible health. I mean, he was collapsing and fainting and walking with a cane and he had asthma and he had art condition. I mean, the, the, the fact that he lived till 74 was probably a miracle based on what this dude put his body through. And Jim Steinman, same thing. He had a couple strokes and uh, officially died of uh, kidney failure, but you know, two strokes and deteriorating health kind of led to that more than anything. One of the cool things about 
meatloaf is that he was very outspoken. He, he really thought for himself. He didn't, he didn't get into the kind of like Hollywood thing or the, this is what a musician or an artist is supposed to say thing. He, whether it was political or whether it was tied to climate change or, or even more recently talking about COVID lockdowns, he was always very outspoken and really sort of stood up for, he seemed like a very alpha person to me, like kind of stood up for what he thought and what he believed and wasn't going to, you know, didn't really care if it hurt his career or hurt his perception or anything. He was more than happy to kind of tell you how he felt about something. And, you know, there's something kind of cool about that. He really struggled with social anxiety his entire life. You know, he had a pretty tough childhood. He, he, he weighed in at 240 pounds in seventh grade. So big person. And, you know, I think part of this aggressive singing was probably a dude who felt like this was the way he could communicate. This was the way he could connect. And even up to late in his life, just hated, despised, and tried to avoid social situations as much as possible. You can tell a little bit of that if, if you watch the Celebrity Apprentice stuff that he was a part of. You could sense that a little bit, you know. Um, but an interesting guy in that regard. Probably one of those guys that when he was performing, he was at his most comfortable. Uh, the follow-up to this, uh, Welcome to the Neighborhood, did pretty well. But really, it's about tonight's album and sort of how it relates to its predecessor. Why don't we get into those nerdy deets, Nub, and let's dig into it. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah! You want some dirty deeds? All right, buddy. Bad out of hell two. Back into hell. Lots of hell going on in that title, yeah? Was released on September 14th, 1993. It was on MCA. Meatloaf was working for MCA. And internationally, it was released on Virgin. This was Meatloaf's sixth studio album. Really, the I would say the third that Jim Steinman really had a strong hand in. They, they, these guys kind of worked in and out of each other's lives at various moments. And, you know, Meatloaf took a pause and actually worked with some other producers and some other composers. And Nubs, to your earlier point, never seemed to quite go as well. But this was the true sort of reconnection of these two for a full effort which was part of, I think, where it led to sort of it being the successor to the original and the sequel to the original Bad Out of Hell. Number one in the US, UK, and Canada sold 14 million. So, I mean, a huge commercial success. There's no question about it. The album before this, Nub, speaking of other uh, producers in 1988, was called Blind Before I Stop. Do you know who uh, produced that and uh, had a heavy hand in that along with Meatloaf? Jeez. Uh, no, I don't. I'll give you a hint. It's a producer we've talked about before on the podcast. Ooh, is it? Um, a German fella. Oh, Frank Farian. The great Frank Farian. That's yeah. right. I remember talking about that during the Millie Vanilli episode. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he, he was actually, you know, he really spearheaded that previous record from Meatloaf, which didn't do great. And this was, Millie Vanilli was just a twinkle in uh, Frank Farian's eye at that point. That was a couple of years before that whole thing came together. There is no Meatloaf without Jim Steinman, as we sort of previously mentioned. Now, here's what's interesting. I didn't really know this until digging in. Jim Steinman, after Bad Out of Hell, you know, he toured a little bit, but he was more of a sort of studio composer type guy. And he had been sort of working 
on the follow-up material um, after Bad Out of Hell throughout the late 70s and had come up with a couple handfuls of songs and apparently had set to meet up with Meatloaf and the remainder of the band. And they were playing a gig in Toronto. After the gig, they were going to start rehearsing this material for the follow-up. Jim Steinman uh, showed up with a lyric book and some songs composed. And uh, during Meatloaf's performance, somebody broke into the dressing room and stole his lyrics. So somebody ran off with his notebook. And basically these songs, and you know how lyrics were very important to a Jim Steinman composition, these were just gone. And apparently also Meatloaf was in pretty rough shape. His voice wasn't in good shape and he wasn't in good shape. So they basically kind of said, we can't really rehearse this stuff. And the project sort of got shelved, but Jim Steinman actually took four songs that appear on tonight's album that appear on Bad Out of Hell 2 and recorded a solo album in 1981 called Bad for Good. So Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, Lost Boys and Golden Girls, Out of the Frying Pan, and Wasted Youth, which was originally called uh, Love and Death and an American Guitar on this record, were all recorded in 1981 by Jim Steinman for a solo album that didn't really do that well. Kind of a weird way that this all, you know, sort of came about. For the record, this is kind of interesting. There's a song on that record called Stark Raving Love, and that uh, the riff in that was used as the intro for another Jim Steinman composition, Holding Out for a Hero. So there you go, which is from Mad Max. Mad Footloose. Max. Footloose. No, Footloose. Footloose. Yeah. We Don't Need Another Hero was Mad Max. Ah, Holding right. Out for a Hero, Bonnie yeah. Tyler. Got your heroes confused there. Yeah. Obviously, Jim Steinman, and you made this point earlier, Nub, uh, had some very successful composition aside from Meatloaf. Uh, he wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart, made famous. Also by Bonnie Tyler. He must have liked Bonnie Tyler, right? Eh? Made more um, famous by the Dan Band. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Good call. Uh, it's All Coming Back to Me Now, which uh, was performed by Celine Dion and later covered by Meatloaf on Bad Out of Hell 3, I believe. And then, of course, a wonderful song that we both love, and we talked about it on the Barry Manilow episode, that being Read Him and Weep which was first recorded by Meatloaf in 1981, wasn't a hit. Manilow did it. Jim Steinman reworked it a little bit for Barry. Huge hit and really one of the best songs of the 80s, in my opinion. One of my favorite songs of all time. And I wish that Barry would have worked with Jim Steinman again. That, that would have been a great partnership. But, you know, Steinman was off to other things. And I, I wonder if Barry enjoyed that process or if he enjoyed that song, you know. But it's, it's easily one of Manilow's best. You know, the, Jim Steinman's funny. His songs became commodities in so many ways. I mean, he was he was not afraid to try his songs anywhere. And in, in fact, you know, two of the songs on Bad Out of Hell 2 had already been recorded by this girl group um, that Jim Steinman was trying to make famous. Meatloaf was pissed, apparently. He's like, you didn't tell me these two songs. You were going to record them with somebody else while we're sort of working through them. I mean. So I don't think Jim Steinman was afraid to sort of uh, mix and match his uh, his songs with different artists or put them where they needed to go to get a hit, you know. And I think one of the things that's clear from his composition is that it does demand a certain kind of voice. 
You know, I mean, there's a reason Read Him and Weep wasn't a hit for Meatloaf, but it was for Manilow. And there's a reason why Celine Dion's version was really, really good and really strong. And, you know, the other cover versions and Meatloaf's version wasn't as good, right? It's an interesting, you know, he this theatrical nature to his composition almost feels in in a lot of ways like a Broadway composition where a lot of it just depends on the singer. You know, a lot of it depends on the vocal treatment. These guys had a rough time through the 80s, and in this this musical marriage we talked about was going through a rough patch, uh, legal battles and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, they came together really for this project. Now, one of the things that's really compelling, I think, about the snubs is while some of these songs have lived on and we'll get to them, this is 1993. This is grunge this is rock. This is minimalism. I mean, people, you know, were figuring out, you know, how Nirvana was going to top the charts and, and Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden and all these things that were really performing in a strong fashion within the industry at this moment. And people started hearing about Meatloaf and Jim Steinman working together on Bad Out of Hell 2, and they thought it was a joke. It was kind of like, Really? Like right now, they really think that's going to sell and that's going to play and that there's an audience for that. And it's just yet another perseverance story here of like this guy, this alpha dude who just sort of doesn't give an F saying, yep, we're going to go for it and we'll see what happens and let's go. And obviously, um, a lot of people were proven wrong by the success of this. They certainly were. I think the year of the album's release is so significant. You touched on it. 1993, just put yourself in the context of that. And the contents of this record, and we'll get into it in the track by track, are just so distant from what was really happening, you know, out on the street, if you will, in rock music. And that's probably exactly why it worked. You know, it was everything grunge wasn't in every single way and became wildly successful. Now a huge hit single will do that for you. I can't wait to talk about the opening track. <laughs> right. It's still going, by the way. The opening track. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. But yeah, 1993, big, big part of this story. Well, and, and I think it'll be a big part of our wondrous stories. Let's go with it. All right. This will be fun. I bet we have similar things. Uh, and similar uh, excursions in mind here, but why don't you start and we'll uh, we'll see where it goes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to? Well, it, I guess two major things with Meatloaf. One is we were record store kids by 1993, meaning that was our second home, right? It's sort of the place we wanted to be if we were not warm and snug in our beds. We wanted to be at Repeat the Beat in Plymouth, Michigan. With that said, we had great familiarity of records, of, of albums, of covers, sleeve designs of, you know, when you go through the M in the CD racks, how can you miss Meatloaf and how can you miss Bad Out of Hell? So I can just be straight up with you, T. I had awareness of Meatloaf. I had awareness of Bad Out of Hell 1, but really never heard it. I really didn't. And I, you could have told me Meatloaf was heavy metal and I would have believed you. And you could have told me Meatloaf was country and I would have believed you. I would have had no idea. I just knew that this bad out of hell thing was wildly successful and had a cover with like a, a motorcycle and whatever on it. Orange. I remember it was orange. 
you know, it was one of those artists that you knew of, didn't know much about, at least in my particular situation. And so when there was like a new meatloaf album, there was a little bit of intrigue, but it was all about the song, you know, and this song just exploded. It was played all over the place. And the ambiguity of the lyrics was rather appealing for a 13 year old lad. And so that was one part of it was just like this awareness of this meatloaf guy must have been incredibly important. And somehow we end up in that those magical summers of 92 and 93 and 94, where we wanted to go to every concert at Pine on Music Theater, but couldn't drive. We, we somehow ended up at the Meatloaf concert being taken by my sister's babysitter, which <laughs> yeah. was not a good idea. <laughs> That's time by my or, or was it? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I remember being there and thinking, oh, this is an event. It was, it was packed. I remember it was very well attended. But that show was was uh, memorable, shall we say? <laughs> maybe more. Why is me, that? Maybe more for me than you. Why don't you tell our listeners Literally. why that was memorable? No. So, uh, well, I know it was memorable for me because, well, I guess for all of us, because said babysitter, and we were what, like fourteen? Yeah. Uh, made a little pit stop on the way to pine Ob and uh, purchased us some Zima. <laughs> That's right. The Zima. We didn't even like ask for it. She just like stopped and just got a bunch of Zima. And did we do the Jolly Rancher thing? I don't think so. I don't think we took it that far, but T we remember just took, just took it straight up before there was white claw. There was Zima. Correct. Yeah. Now right. it's like the cool thing to do at the time. You know, I mean, we didn't care. We were 14 and it was like, we get to drink. This is amazing. And I think, I think it was the first time that I was like drunk was this meatloaf concert. And we had a buddy with us. It was your first time, but it was one of the, let's say it was one of the early. Oh yeah. One of the first three. I would say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we made a pit stop, got some Zima and uh, (laughs) car full of Zima. And all was great until uh, our dad found out. Yeah, then all was not great. And I think to this day, I you told him, didn't you? See, I was pretty good at getting away with stuff. Nubs was not as good. Nubs was not. He was easy to sort of getting you to fess up to stuff was pretty easy. So he cornered you. I absolutely did not tell him, but I got cornered. Yeah. Yeah. He was good at that. He's good at that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm not good at lying. I can't do it. So it was. Yeah, I was cornered. He had intel. Let's just put it that way. He did he, have intel. He, had intel yeah, he, he sure. has later revealed to us that he had some intel on this one. There's no doubt he had intel. But instead of asking me, he went right to nubs. Well, he know. knows what you would have said. <laughs> he didn't want to put you in that position. Right. Yeah, we got caught and it was not pretty. But uh, And I got I to gotta admit, I've never since then really got into meatloaf. I was going to say, from, you never since then got into Zima again. Yeah, like, just White Claw. Yeah, right. Aside from... Bad Out of Hell 3 came out is when I was reviewing music. I did a review of it. I thought it was a good album. There's a song on there called Alive. If anyone wants to hear it, just yeah. up Meatloaf Alive. Yeah. It's like one of the best songs of that decade. It's this huge, powerful rock anthem. Hard, kind of a it. hard charger. Yeah. Yes. I listen to it all the time. Well, that was Desmond Child produced Bad Out of Hell 3, but did, did Jim Steinman write Alive? No, I don't think so. No. I, I don't think Jim Steinman had anything to do with, do with Battle of Hell 3, but you can look it up. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Yeah, it, it was, he, he was definitely all in with uh, Desmond Child, who, who had some similarities, you know. Do you have anything to add? Well, I mean, you I, bought Bad at L2 and you listened to it a lot. I, you love well, the opening track. That was the, I mean, I didn't really listen to the album a, a ton, but I went through a phase where the opening track's 12 minutes. And I had it sort of timed where like I could get, I, I believe, get out of the shower put the song on and I had it timed where I, I could like get dressed and like brush my teeth or whatever the hell else I did. This is like high, uh, high school, junior high school. And um, right when the song ended, I was like out the door. So there was like a year probably where I played this entire track every, every day. And it was like, I liked it, but it also kind of just served as this like, it sort of got me going like it was a it's an upbeat song. It's a song that changes a lot of direction and all that, obviously. But there was something about listening to that long piece every morning that I just really liked. You so, know, when you did this, though, this was one of your moves. People should know this. You had this like thing and the song would change from time to time. You had this move where you would listen to roughly the same yes. song. It was like your timekeeper, too. Yeah. But you listen to the same song every morning. It wasn't the same song for four years, but. Yes. You would listen to pretty well, much Alice in Chains would yeah. was it was and I but I think I would listen to that like three times in a row, right? Yeah, well, you can listen like, to that three times in the space that it takes to listen to. <laughs> I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> correct, correct. The other thing we we really should, and we've talked about Hell's Bells, the dangers of rock music before on the podcast. This is the uh, the the Christian VHS tape that sort of tells you how how evil rock and roll is, and they're talking about the El Coronado, you know that symbol that you make with your index finger and your pinky with the rock and roll thing. Right. And they're saying that that's actually an evil, like satanic um, symbol, right. To do with your hand, you know? So uh, they're, they're highlighting people doing the El Coronado and they're making it seem very, you know, it's like very, these are the, the evil people out there that are flashing this satanic symbol or whatever. And it's uh it's a uh, Rick James meatloaf and meatloaf's doing the El Coronado and sticking his tongue out (laughs) and it's so funny it's such a great picture and then who are the others that they say uh it's like uh i don't even remember we don't know i just remember that rick james meatloaf meatloaf yeah (laughs) that's always a good one for us you know because meatloaf uh, was so satanic yeah yeah (laughs) so was rick james i always think too one other one other thing that always makes me laugh is is uh, i don't know if you remember this but Barack Obama, when he was president, would do the um, what's that thing where they roast the media, the 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 White House correspondence dinner. Correspondence oh, I know dinner. you're about to say it's great. Yeah, correspondence dinner, and and this was actually uh, Obama was was making fun of Trump. Trump was in the audience, and he was because they had been talking about Trump wanting to run for president and all this. And and Obama was always very funny during this correspondence dinner. You know, he's he was he had great timing, great delivery. And uh, I remember he was uh, basically like pointing out the hilarity at the time, which obviously Donald Trump got the last laugh here, but the the hilarity of the time of Donald Trump wanting to run for president because he was just a TV guy at the moment, you know, he's a guy who's bankrupt all the time and he's just a TV guy. Right. And so uh, Barack Obama was kind of making fun of Donald Trump for, you know, I think he was saying something like, and these are the decisions that keep me up at night. Like, you know. He was like talking about like the competition, the Omaha Steaks competition. And he's like, and he says something like, would it be uh, Gary Busey? 
or uh, meatloaf. <laughs> you know, in that in that in that Barack Obama <laughs> yeah. kind of delivery, yeah. it is yeah. great. I always love what he said. Um, or uh, meatloaf. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was that was maybe totally, laugh. totally. But, uh, yeah, because <laughs> there was a hilarious season of Celebrity Apprentice where it was it was like Gary Busey and, and meatloaf and all these other bozos. I mean, it was great, great television. You know, hey, T, do you while we're at it, do you like meatloaf the food? No. Yeah, me neither. I think it's terrible. I don't even I know what it is. Like, like what's in it? Like, well, there's like a variety of things in it. It's like a big old slab of meat, and then you like basically marble it with all sorts of junk. Yeah. In theory, Mrs. Nubs always says this. She's like, in theory, you really should like meatloaf because it's a big old yeah. thing of meat, gravy, and potatoes, and there's like ketchup in it or something. Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. But but yeah, but it's not, it's sort of like one of those things where like the sum of the parts you'd think that that you like everything that goes into it, but when it's all amalgamated together, it's terrible. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, all right. Well, now we've covered off. Are we ever going to get we talked talked about, we went from the correspondence dinner in Washington to, uh, to do you like a nice hearty plate of meatloaf? (laughs) See, do you want to just talk about one track in the pod and then be done with it? (laughs) Let's get to the track by track, buddy. All right. Well, hey, we, we kicked this one off uh, with, with something that it was just a massive, massive hit. Uh, it certainly was a, a comeback effort for these two gentlemen. And, you know, one where people that heard it on the radio or people that saw it on MTV weren't really getting the full uh, experience here. Uh, of what uh, the rest of us that actually did go through track one on this record, we're getting with the 12 minute extravaganza, anything for love, but I won't do that. good um, high gain guitar there that I think just brings it wide open and I mean listen it's it's 12 minutes it's really difficult to sort of find the right piece because there are a lot of different um, moves taking place I, you know I think it's a, a verse and a chorus too long but kind of part of what made it what it what it was right i mean these guys weren't going to come out with some sort of medium in terms of majesticness single and that's not the way jim steinman rolled and i don't think that was what they really wanted to do in setting the tone here for this record and for this single so i've i don't ever listen to it and say okay i'm really sick of this because i think there's always it's a it's a very adventurous song and I think one that's pretty timeless and, and still holds up extremely well. They probably could have chopped a minute and a half or so out of it and been fine. But no, I don't. I think it works. I still think the epicness, the theatricalness of it still plays. And I think this is a song that really holds up well. So I have a lot of thoughts. So does this song. 
one of the cheapest criticisms that one can give about anything is that it's too long. I try and avoid that in my life in all sorts of areas. Um, I work in the communications business and a lot of times people say, Oh, that, that was too, that message was too long. You know, everything's too long. And I just don't even think that's a good criticism because, you know, JFK is three and a half hours. Is it too long? No, because it's amazing <laughs> and it's captivating and it keeps your attention the whole time. So, you know, I, I never heard gone with the wind described as too long. I've only heard it described as this classic film that everybody should see before they die. I think that one's too long. <laughs> right. So, but that, I guess that's my point to you is that like too long is totally in the eye and ear of the beholder because it's only too long for you because you quit on it or you don't have the attention span or whatever. Maybe you just didn't like it. All of which are fine. I want to get away from the too long bit mm-hmm. and just focus on some of the key areas. The piano intro is, is incredible. You know, it's very, very grand. It's got a nice little walk up and down, sets the stage. Meatloaf's vocals enter with great atmosphere. And then it builds and builds and builds. And in the clip that you actually played is one of the best builds that we have. It is when that electric guitar comes in. And let's be honest, that guitar tone does not work for most of the album. Mm-hmm. But it works very, very well on this song. In fact, this is the best sounding song on the whole record. Far and away. It's got the best space. It's got the best dynamics. The drums are huge. The guitar, the blazing kind of 90s guitar thing works. And Meat Love is singing his heart out. It does repeat the, the, the main hook more than I wish it did. Mm-hmm. It goes to the well too often. But right at the moment where you think, oh, this again, then they bring in the chick singer. who I, 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 remember, yeah. I remember who it is. That's an interesting point. It, it actually... so. Patty Russo is, was his longtime touring female vocalist, long time. And the vocals on the record are, are done by Lorraine Crosby, who was originally laying down a dummy vocal because they were looking at having like Cher or Melissa Etheridge or a couple of sort of big name vocalists do this part. And the more they listened to Lorraine Crosby's dummy vocals, they basically called her a few months later and said, can we just keep your vocals? So it's this weird, it's like, it wasn't his touring vocalist. It wasn't one of these A-list vocalists they were looking for at the time. It was this sort of more unknown who, you know, was basically laying down a frame track for whoever was eventually going to sing. It was just kind of interesting. That is interesting. Now, do you know who toured with him when we, the show we were at? Yeah, that would have been this Patty Russo who was so on she tour was, with him for like okay, decades. So that, yeah. yeah, okay, good. Well, yeah. I actually I would rarely say this, dude, as a progger. Very rarely say this. I think I like the radio edit better than the album version, but I do like the album version just for what it stands for. So really important song of the 90s, a very, very unlikely hit. Very unlikely. And T, it begs the question, what is that? Yeah. What is I, we never found out what that was. I kind of thought this might be like meets like Rosebud moment, you know, like uh, maybe he's like on his deathbed and like he'd finally tell everybody what that is. But yeah, yeah and it's did. something stupid like, yeah, put cream cheese on my bagel or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Open the, the car door for you, you know. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So we never really found that out. But, um, 
it's a you know it's obviously very the the, the video series uh, from Bad Out of Hell Two is really interesting. These were all Michael Bay directed uh, videos, which which they did one for this, they did one for Rock and Roll Dreams Come True, and then they did one for Objects in the Rearview Mirror. So they had this sort of trilogy of of almost films uh, done by Michael Bay tied to these songs. And obviously this was a huge video, this sort of beauty and the beast, you know, concept, by the way, on the, on the female singer thing, the other thing that's interesting is the person in the video, the chick in the video was just lip syncing. She was like an actress. So, so you had multiple, uh, you know, ins and outs here going on with this female vocal part. He won the Grammy for uh, best rock performance solo. This was number one in 28 countries. Uh, the, the top single in the UK. In 1993, this was an enormous song, enormous song. So, well, I mean, well, well, hell, shall we press on? I mean, (laughs) what do you say, Al? (laughs) Like, should we call it a day or I mean, you know, most people probably think the album's done at this point, but, you know, I, I feel like maybe we should keep going, you know? I mean, are there more songs? <laughs> right. Uh. All right. This is track two. This is called Life is a Lemon and I Want My Money Back. All right. So here's the thing. Um, if Devin Townsend did this song, you'd probably love it. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, are you thinking of this as like through the meatloaf lens and it's silly? Or are you kind of saying, wow, there's some neat moments here. And this is kind of a cool eight minute you know, not, not really proggy, but certainly for Jim Steinman, a bit more of a riffy kind of rocker here in, in track two. What do you think of life as a lemon? Well, I think it's a good riff. Number one. I do like that. There's some distraction. You know, I know some, some of our listeners might get sick of hearing me talk about the drums and everything, but like that China symbol in the chorus is so distracting. It, it's not a great drum part, you know? Um, I, I think it's a little bit of an exercise in how to take a cool riff and, and ruin it a little bit. Ruin might be a little heavy, but you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have the adventure that probably that riff should have. And the other thing I would say is just from a lyrical perspective. And again, you know, you and I well-documented, not lyric people, but like these lyrics are pretty dumb. You know, and yeah, sometimes it it sort of um, gets in the way. I mean, I I like that it's not um, cliche ish, and that it is a little bit tongue and cheeky, and it's not taking itself too seriously. But also, it can be a little too campy, right? And and there's a lot of campiness with meatloaf music. I mean, there's no question, of course. Yeah. Um, but this is, you know, I think if you <laughs> if if this is a, another band doing this song you're probably jamming you know you're probably like man this has got cool moments cool groove so it's kind of one of those deals and i think we'll run into this a couple times on this record where you sort of have to strip the 
theatrics from it and just it's almost like we did on the Millie Vanilli episode, like get rid of all the noise and just focus on the signal uh, of the album and and what those moments are and what it's trying to do. It's 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 signal signal versus noise, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Can't pay attention to the signal, you know. Well, this was another uh, single. This was another one of the Michael Bay directed videos. And this was one of the tracks that appeared on that 1981 Jim Steinman solo album, obviously a bit more modernized and and certainly re-recorded and performed with the great meat on vocals here. This is Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through. I, um, I really like this song, (laughs) you know, I, I think it's, uh, got a nice driving nature to it. I think it's got a really nice, uh, simple progression, great vocal line. I think this is where some of the, uh, uh, sort of choral vote backing vocals work, you know, and there's a lot of that. It's sort of the Todd, the Todd Rundgren esque thing that Jim Steinman liked to do. In fact, his, it's probably his voice. He, he did a lot of the backing vocals on this record. I haven't really heard the original. I'm not sure if you went back and listened to the original on the Jim Steinman record, but I think this one really works. I actually think it's a good track three. I think it's a good single. It's certainly an ideal follow-up single. It's it's one of the shorter pieces on the album at, you know, almost six minutes. I, I've always kind of liked this song, Nub. Yeah, it, it's it's a nice addition to the album for sure. Yeah, it drives along, suits, meets voice very well. Still, I think from a, you know, composition perspective it's got the jim steinman flourishes but it doesn't really reach that you know grand pinnacle that his most notable work does but it's a nice rock song and i think it's i agree i think it's a nice you know it's a worthy track three and and uh and a good addition to the album for sure it's definitely simple you know for for jim steinman purposes it's short and simple and uh you know, I think that that's nice after you get through the first two tracks, uh, which take you on a little bit of a ride in different directions to have something that's pretty straightforward and simple, I think really works. Track four is it just won't quit. You got uh, four on the floor there, you know, in terms of the drums and keeps that chorus kind of moving along nicely. Um, I think there's some cool layers here. Good instrumentation. It's it's again, it's it's a bit more straightforward for a Jim Steinman song, but um, good vocal. I think it's pretty trademark Steinman in a lot of ways in terms of the progression and in terms of sort of the um, sort of theatrical nature of it. but. Yeah, I think this, I think, again, I think this one kind of works. Yeah, it does. You know, big chorus is the key. And you start to get the vocal layers too that come in because as, as strong as Meatloaf's voice is, you know, so much of the sound on this album and Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell 3 is, you know, some of the background vocal layers that were coming in as well. So I think it works too. I do like the the kind of big stomp behind it. It is interesting that aside from the, 
the, you know, the opening track, this album is really dominate, dominated by much, much simpler ideas compared to bad out of hell one, which, yeah. which is essentially a prog rock album with all these twists and turns. It's like show tunes basically, you know, right. And you don't get that show tuney vibe on bad out of hell too. It's much more of a rock album. And to yeah. our conversation earlier, that was responding to the times. I think, you know, I'm not sure the show tune thing would have worked. I think it's a really good point. This is a, this is a pretty, you know, driving rock record, which obviously, you know, to your exact point in 1993, if you wanted to sell and you wanted to appeal to an audience that would uh, take this in as teenagers and as, you know, those that are more into the grunge thing, you definitely needed that edge. I think they captured that. Well, I think it's a song that's an example of something that maybe isn't the, you know, most uh, intricate, incredible song ever written, but well-produced well-produced. And I think that you get that top to bottom here. Another sort of campy title here, which you get, they like the parentheses too, didn't they? Really always like to use those out of the frying pan and into the fire. Track five. This, this definitely, I think, goes along the same idea of maybe something that was a little bit more Bad Out of Hell 1-ish. Yeah, I agree. You know? yeah. yeah, in sort of the way that it moves and in sort of the, um, uh, you know, kind of majestic nature of it, but still a pretty stripped down rock song. It's seven minutes, 20. So again, you continue with these sort of long ideas. You know, it's, it's not the greatest song on the record, but, you know, it's got some cool moments and upbeat again in heart. You know, it, it, this was kind of a driving record. You know, this was something that, you know, was upbeat, a lot of four on the floor, a lot of kind of hard charging stuff. And and Meatloaf's vocals, I think, um, you know, on pretty much most of these tracks, including this one, kind of made it work. The The problem really gets down to you're about halfway through the album at this point, and some of that Jim Steinman lyrical irony, it just starts to get a little bit much, you know? I mean, it's like, okay, out of the frying pan and into the fire and I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And yeah, it's like, okay, I get it, dude. You really like to do the play on words thing and, you know, and be ironic and take sayings and mess with them. And, you know, it's cool, but by the time an album sort of reaches a few songs that you're, you're craving a little bit, something different. Well, I wish we could say that that stops on the next track, but certainly with a bit of, uh, of an embellished um, title. Now, now this one's very interesting. Um, and this was probably, this is the beginning of side two, and it's probably sort of positioned as like the second real epic um, and this was the third single and the other, the third Michael Bay video, a song that I really think they thought had a lot of potential, a lot of upside. We'll touch on that in a second, but let's first hear a little bit of objects in the rear view mirror may appear closer than they are. Just like 
remember this, um, but at the concert, I, for some reason, I always remembered this, that Meatloaf, you know, he, he didn't really talk a lot, you know, um, he wasn't really big into sort of the in-between song banter, you know, probably because he was trying to catch his breath. This guy could sweat like you read about. Oh, man. Big, big sweaty guy up yeah. there. You know? Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but before they played this song, he he really he said he thought I remember. I don't know why I remember this. He said he thought this was the best song Jim Steinman ever wrote. He said he thinks it's kind of the most special track on Bad Out of Hell too, and 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 one of the most you know more special tracks that he and Jim ever worked on together. He was very complimentary and enthusiastic about this song, and you know I gotta say I'm I'm with the amount of Zima you drank that night. I'm surprised you remember <laughs> anything. Well, you know by that point maybe it started started to wear off, but sometimes with album any album. And certainly with any um, composer, and I think this happens a lot in music, you can tell that there are these songs that just the the band or the songwriter just love and spent a lot of time on and really care, like put a lot of care into. And I think that's this, even more so than anything for love, which they knew was going to be the smash. But I, I feel like they really believed in this song. They really thought that this was going to be something big. You could tell how much Meatloaf just from the concert and from, you know, the other commentary that he had about this track. This was one that they just really seemed to like. I think it's good. I don't think it's as good as they thought it was. I don't think it kind of hits the mark as sharply as certainly, you know, it seemed like Jim Steinman thought and, you know, Meatloaf himself thought. It's a good start to side two. I do like that there's sort of another epic 10 plus minute deal here, but I don't think it rises to the level of of track one. But you can tell Nub that they sure thought it was and they sure put a lot of TLC into this song. It's it's a little bit like the before mentioned read them and weep and feel, but it's a little bit of the opposite. See, read them and weep, whether it's a, the meatloaf version, but certainly the very male version, it, it's got kind of a okay verse and then an amazing chorus this is like the opposite i I think the verses here are really powerful and they you capture that steinman meatloaf kind of magic but then the the chorus is really blah and and the the objects in the rear view mirror vocal is it's just it doesn't really explode in any way yeah so it's almost like a reverse dynamic against read them and weep yeah, I'm with you. I think that, you know, the, the, the way that this, I think they, they liked part of what they liked about this was the peaks and valleys. And I think the peaks really work and the valleys, not so much, you know? Yeah. That's well said actually. Yeah. It, it, it's too many peaks and valleys too. You never quite get locked into a, a feel, you know, it yeah. just keeps going back and forth. There's a, there's an edit of this song that that's kind of better. I think it's like five, six minutes maybe. And, and I think it's a little bit more efficient. So we're going to skip track seven because it's a spoken word sort of thing from actually, I think it's Jim Steinman doing a spoken word called. Yeah. What is, what is, I don't that? know. It, it serves as kind of an intro to the next song, which, which repeats wasted youth. So I feel like it's almost kind of a prologue. But uh, we'll skip that and get to track eight, which is everything louder than everything else. Everything louder than everything else. 
This one feels probably as bad out of hell one as anything on the album. I think in terms of kind of the, the group singing and, and some of the breakdowns and, you know, has a little bit more of a, you know, sort of classic rock, you know, kind of late seventies feel to it more so than a 1993 feel to it. At this point, I think you're starting to get a little repetitive. You know, you get to this point, it's like, okay, I think we've run this play before, you know, and it's seven and a half minutes. Now there's some cool dynamics, you know, when it sort of breaks down there and cuts out and it's just the the sort of guitar and the choral vocals. I mean, it's, it's kind of neat, but you start to get the feeling here, especially after a lot of these long pieces where, you know, you're sort of getting to the end of the album, the last couple tracks. And it's like, have I heard this one already before? You know what I mean? I can be honest with you. It's actually my second favorite song on the record. Yeah, good. Yeah. I, the throwback to the Wasted Youth thing might be part of it because it, it, it justifies the track that comes before it to have some kind of reference point. I like that it doesn't feel like it has to do the loud, quiet, loud, quiet, loud, quiet, loud thing. Right. It's got just a little bit more of a force to it, a little bit more of a fist pump thing. Uh, I can't remember if you played this at the show. Probably would have been a pretty effective live song. It's interesting. We see it differently in another way too. I, I don't really see this as bad out of hell ish. I see this more as like the true nineties version of meatloaf. You know, mm-hmm. it almost feels like this is him and, and Jim to an extent, maybe trying to be a little, a little grungy you know, and not, not achieving it whatsoever, but it's, it's kind of a blast off rocker more than anything. That's like super theatric. And for that reason, I like it. It's actually, this is the track of the album that probably recaptures my attention as much as anything on the second half, for sure. Well, we couldn't have more opposite takes on that one, buddy. Um, (laughs) For sure. (laughs) But hey, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of this. All right. The next track, we've really got two more left. uh, And uh, this one is uh, Good Girls Go to Heaven, Bad Girls Go Everywhere. This is a total T song. I, I have to guess that. I have to guess that this one is is one of your favorites on the album. It's good. I, I, I like it. I mean, again, you're you're four on the floor here, and that that seems to be a common thread in a lot of the choruses, which make it hard driving and make it hooky and all that stuff. Yeah, I think this one's pretty good. I, you know, it's it's probably it's top half. Um, like the driving nature of it, you know, and and I think you get that a lot here where. Again, the fist pumpy four on the floor stuff, I think, I think kind of works in most cases and you're getting toward the end of the album and this gives you a little spark of energy. And yeah, I I think, uh, I think it's a good, uh, you know, if you're kind of considering this, uh, the second to last track, I think it provides a good spark. Top half for me too. What can be underrated in the uh, whole kind of meatloaf sound and certainly in this record is the role of the piano, you know, the. There, there's not a lot of other rock and roll bands where, where the piano itself was so upfront, you know, in so many moments on Meatloaf's music, the piano is way more out in front than the guitar, certainly the bass, you know, there's not a ton of synthesizer stuff out front. I'm sure there is in terms of background layers and things like that, but piano is such a key role and it's Jim Steinman's chief instrument. I'm sure. You know, I think that's of course what he writes on. So sure, sure. probably has something to do with it. 
Well, back into hell is track 10. It's sort of a weird instrumental. We're just going to skip that. And we're going to go to the final track, which was one that appeared on the uh, original Jim Steinman solo album. And they utilized that to close out Bad Out of Hell 2 with Lost Boys and Golden Girls. And that's how she closes up, obviously something that's a bit more atmospheric and uh, a bit more lovely to kind of wrap it up. I, I like the dynamics at the end of the album, the, 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 even the instrumental that sort of leads into this is just kind of strange and kind of cool. I, th- I think it kind of exits appropriately, you know, with the last three tracks in particular, doing what it needs to do and sort of ending with that, you know, kind of epilogue that Jim Steinman often like to do since often you know he was really putting together musicals in a lot of ways at least conceptually more so than he was just tracks on an album and you can kind of see what he was going for here on the last one yeah i do i do think the sequencing is is a win on the album you know opens the right way takes you on the journey through the middle and end and and it concludes in a way that was fitting you wouldn't really be able to put this track on any other part of the album, but the very end. So, you know, props to the sequencing. And I would say the same for the first bat out of hell as well. It's part of the magic to it. Well, it's episode 71 and, uh, you know, I, I hate to admit when this happens, but Nubs actually had a really good idea recently. And that is to kind of change up what we previously called, did it matter? And really ask what we thought is kind of a, well, he really thought, and I agreed kind of a more important question which we're going to go with from here on out. So all you hardcore fans out there, you're going to notice a little bit of a change, but instead of going with, did it matter? The question we're going to ask really is how did it hold up? Which I think is kind of what we ended up talking about for the most part anyway. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So nubs, how did bad out of hell Two hold up for you? Not particularly well. And I think that probably is part of the reason why it was popular, though. As mentioned earlier, I think that the, the fact that this album was an antithesis of everything that was going on with grunge and, and all this the kind of dark energy of the early to mid-1990s, I think that played into why we're still talking about this album today. But that also plays into why it hasn't held up well. It was, it was already outdated in 1993. And it's kind of severely outdated now. I do think what's fascinating about it is hearing the 90s production. And you mentioned it right off the top, kind of the 90s guitar sound. And, you know, all those elements with this artist who was last relevant in like 1978. That's an interesting thing to hear now in 2022. It doesn't mean it holds up because it doesn't. You know, if you played this album for a younger listener, I don't think they would understand it at all. But you know what? There were lots of younger listeners in 1983 that didn't understand it either. And that was part of its charm. So, uh, but overall, I would say, no, I don't think it holds up to you. What do you think? It's, it's an interesting question on something like this, because I don't think the idea was for it to be super trendy or timely. I think that they made adjustments to make it certainly appeal to the 1993 audience, but they weren't trying to like 
have meatloaf gone grunge by any means. This is he and Jim Steinman doing what they do. So, you know, musically and theatrically, it's so original. I mean, you, you really don't hear a lot of things like this. You know, I don't know that it's something that needed to hold up necessarily because it's meatloaf, it's Jim Steinman, and they're always going to sort of run their play and do what they do. The original question, though, of, 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 you know, how much does this album matter? I think it really mattered a lot in, in at a time period where things were starting to become a little bit formulaic commercially. And it was about, you know, minimalism and, you know, things that sort of had a, a darker, more angsty sort of tone to them. And for Meatloaf to be not just taken seriously, which was an uphill battle for him at this time, but to basically kick the ass of a lot of this, commercially at least, a lot of this uh, material that was out there that certainly took on something that was a bit more edgy with something that was grand and epic and long songs and lots of layering and lots of instrumentation and instrumentation to your point about the piano that really wasn't sort of happening much at this time. I think the album mattered a lot in showing everyone that there is a unique angle on what has commercial appeal and that there was enough nostalgia with the original Bad Out of Hell to where, you know, you could come out with something that had good enough material on it. One just absolute smash, you know, global smash single and package it in a way that really kept this Bad Out of Hell tradition and this sort of Bad Out of Hell branding alive. And I think it did that. It pulled it off. And uh, so whether it holds up or not, whether it sort of mattered in the grand scheme of things or not. I think you have to agree that they set out to do something pretty bold with a lot of headwinds, way more headwinds than tailwinds in in pulling it off. And they sure did. It worked. It got it got it done. So let's answer that second question there, buddy. What's your final cut on Bad Out of Hell 2? Is it on the turntable in the collection? collecting dust or go into that for sale bin nubs what do you got i go into the for sale bin but i do think that i would do anything for love or i what's the proper title anything for love right the, the exact title is actually i'd do anything for love parentheses <laughs> but i won't do that yeah i'd yeah they go with the uh they go with contraction the, contraction contraction, contraction. Mm-hmm. right yeah i think that's that song should be on every 90s compilation. It's an extremely important song. And one of the most entertaining songs of the 90s in all genres. So that song is, is you know, that song's a pinnacle. That song's important. The rest of the album, I do agree with everything you just said. I admire the fact that they stayed so true on certain elements and then kind of, you know, enhance certain elements to try and be relevant to the time. You know, it just didn't work for me entirely. I'm, I got to be honest with you, too. I mean, we kind of mentioned this. I'm not even a big fan of Bad Out of Hell 1. You know, the, the, if I want yeah. music this adventurous, I'm probably going to go for something that's just a little less whimsical and more serious. Yeah. And even if I want something that's a little more on the absurd side, I'll go with like Frank Zappa. You know, me- I, I don't disagree with you, but it is incredible the way Bad Out of Hell 1 has held up. Yeah. There are anthems 
on that that have just stood the test of time in a pretty incredible way. I mean, so go to any karaoke bar in the country. And before the end of the night, somebody is singing paradise by the dashboard light, probably very poorly, Yeah, you know, but yeah, you're right. There's look, it's an iconic album. It's just not really for me. And therefore bad out of hell too, is not really for me either, but I do love the opening track. I really do. It's, it's an important song of kind of you and I's childhood for sure. So yeah, T, where, where do you got it? Where's the front of cut? Yeah, I'm going to go collecting dust because, you know, I do think that this was very important to its decade and to its time period. And, you know, there are going to be plenty of uh, collections where you probably don't listen to it that often. But you know what? You got it in there because so many, I mean, this sold 14 million. I mean, so many people own this album. That, and that although, is a stunning number. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that again, it was lofty to try and capitalize and pull off this sequel element of Bad Out of Hell, which was so beloved and so anthemic and still to this day is iconic. They did it. And that wasn't easy. That was a big hill to climb. I do think they leaned pretty hard on one song in particular to make that happen, but there are moments that are pretty sturdy here and moments that if you are able to take in the entire album, which isn't easy, it's not a particularly easy listen. It's long. You know, you sort of have to commit to it a little bit. It's a bit of a commitment, but something that was lofty, something where nobody thought it had a chance. In fact, most people probably just thought it was kind of a joke and, uh, and they did it. And I think that there's something to that, that was really important to its decade and probably important to the collections of a lot of people who maybe still have the CD laying around, you know, or the cassette tape since those are, you know, cool again. So I'm going with collecting dust. All right, buddy. That's a, uh, that's a wrap on the record, but before we wrap the episode, let's see what uh, old Dolores has for us here. What do you think? What is in your head nubbins? Let's go. First would be a track, the title track. In fact, from an album that is uh, actually getting the reissue treatment here very soon. I'm looking forward to it. And that is the song Gold from the album, The Gold Experience from probably my favorite Prince song. Such a great song. Such a great. So they're, they're re uh, they're reissuing the gold experience. Yeah. It's getting a vinyl release for record store day. And then it's getting like a standard CD and maybe box set like it's a great you know what it's a good prince record it's endorphin machines great dolphins a really good song um that's got most beautiful girl in the world i think on it that's a that's a really good prince record the the 90s prince is super overlooked yeah you know diamonds and pearls is a great record gold experience the symbol album because that's also getting oh a with reissue. seven and the morning papers yeah, yeah like very good I mean great stuff like it's you know I think unfortunately with Prince everyone just turns to the hits and the eighties stuff that nineties output is as creative and interesting as as anything that came out in the decades so yeah 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 that, that that I love that song that guitar solo that he rips at the end is just incredible. Yeah, Secondly, gold is, that's a great, it's a great choice. Gold is a really special Prince song. Yeah. For sure. Another special song here from the money man, Eddie money. The summer's coming up and we don't have any money to open up Pine no. Theater anymore. Unfortunately. Speaking of another, another show we went to at Pine Ob, 
one year, but but we weren't the drunk ones. It was uh, it was it was Eddie Money was the one that was just absolutely was bombed on plastered stage. on stage yeah, for sure. That's great. But uh, take me home tonight, which will be you know probably coming to a karaoke bar near you. Well, and we just lost Ronnie Spector. I don't know if that factored yeah. into your. Uh, it did not. Yeah, not, yeah, we, that's a good call. We just yeah. lost her what like a week or two ago. So yeah, um, yeah, okay. And lastly, the little Bowie from Diamond Dogs, and that is the the great three song sweet, sweet thing candidate, sweet thing reprise. One of my favorite Bowie moments. Yeah, that's what's uh, you know in my head. T, what's in your head? Well, I've got one by the Doors, but this is off Full Circle. So this was one of the post Jim Morrison Ooh, records yes. in Vertilac, man. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> what a freaking jam! It's just so good. It's just so good. And uh, you know, man, Zarek just crushing it on the vocals. That that post Jim stuff's really interesting, and in most cases, pretty cool. Actually. Love those albums. Yeah, yeah. The second is uh, from a, a film. That uh, we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, that being rad, you know the BMX movie with Crew Jones and Bart Connor, and of course the Reynolds twins, and Lori Laughlin, who's now in jail, I think, yes. and uh, Adrian Balboa as uh, Crew Jones's mom. It's a special film, great film, and uh, John Farnham does some work on there and i'm just gonna go with thunder in your heart which is a great 80s song and during the really the pinnacle you know bmx race is where they play that that jam the emotional climax of rad it's a bit of a climax yeah it's a bit of a climax and uh thirdly starting to think about uh starting to think about the spring just i I think like tomorrow as we record this is going to be like a nice day here you know it's going to be in the 60s and starting to think about some of those summer songs. And one of them for me is this old, old school rap track from the eighties by Rodney. O, and it's called everlasting bass. So check that out. Nub. This was fun. I think, uh, you know, it's always good to uh, do these episodes that are a bit timely when we lose the artist. And it was, it was a bummer to lose meatloaf. It definitely, impacted a lot of people throughout a a wide range of ages because you know you have people that were you know born in the 40s and 50s that uh you know really connected with the first bad out of hell obviously our generation really connected with the second one we talked about today and you know he didn't stop he went on and, and created some you know some successful work obviously did the bad out of hell three and i think you know a guy that persevered and plowed through and more people probably love meatloaf than not, you know, and it was fun to talk about, buddy. Love the choice. little trip down memory lane. And just remember, I would do anything for you T, but I won't do that. But what is that? I'm never telling. Ah, God, I thought maybe I'd get you. <laughs> thought maybe you'd tell us. Well, Maybe in a future episode, you'll tell us what that is. But I don't think we're ever going to find out because both Jim and Meat are gone. But uh, you never know. Maybe they wrote it in a maybe they wrote it in a diary somewhere or something, you know, and we'll find out someday. Wasn't it Bill Clinton under oath said, it depends on what your definition of is is <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's right. it's like, yeah it depends on what your definition of that yeah is. while he's blatantly lying to a grand jury yeah exactly <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
exactly. And uh, and with that, we'll close the curtain on episode seventy-one here, talking about Me Loves Bad Out of Hell too. We will be back. I know we're due for a Q and A, so we might be. I don't know if we're going to do that episode, but we do have that coming up. And of course, we have episode seventy-two coming right up. So listen, be good, be proud, be strong, be an alpha. Don't be a victim and just go out there and kick ass because things are getting better, aren't they, Nub? Things are looking up. Looking up. (laughs) At least they're starting to. And we will see you next time for episode 72 here on Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care now. That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.